welcome to the Truth Ward Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have benefited from this podcast or any of Olin's books, we'd like to ask you to leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast or wherever you purchase your books. Now, here's Olin. have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. And as you turn there, let me pray briefly one more time for us. Father, would you make your presence known to us this morning through your written word? Would you illuminate the scriptures to us in a fresh way by your Holy Spirit to our hearts? Lord, make it personal. Make it applicable. Make it practical. Lord, show us what you are calling us to do, how you are calling us to respond. Lord, and I pray that any way that the evil one uh, might oppose your work here this morning, any way that he might try to distract us, any way that he might try to snatch the word from our minds, that you would be preventing him so that your word could go deep into our heart and our souls and plant roots that would grow up and produce much fruit for your glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 12, and I want you to think about... Has there ever been a time in your life maybe where you feel like the deck of life is stacked against you? Where all the circumstances seem to be going wrong. Maybe you feel like you're run over by life. You're oppressed. You're overwhelmed. You're surrounded by darkness. You're surrounded by hardship. Everything seems to be not going your way. We're doing a series on 1 Samuel, but what we're really doing is we're doing a compare and contrast between King Saul and King David. And we've been looking at King Saul. We started in 1 Samuel 9, where Saul first comes on the scene. And if you were with us last week, we looked at 1 Samuel 11, and Saul showed some of his great spiritual leadership qualities. We're skipping, essentially, chapter 12. We're going to look at just a couple of verses, because chapter 12 really isn't about Saul or David. It's just Samuel. And basically what Samuel the prophet is doing, in a sense, he's saying, I have seen the Lord raise up a good, effective king in Saul. And so I'm going to step back a little bit, maybe into some semi-retirement, we might say, and let Saul step forward and take some of the leadership burden. And so let's look at just a few of the words that Samuel speaks in 1 Samuel chapter 12, as he's passing the mantle of leadership, so to speak, to Saul, the newly confirmed king after this great victory he's had over the Ammonites. 1 Samuel chapter 12, and let's start in verse 13. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen... For whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord, your God, it will be well. And then skip down to verse 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So as Samuel is taking a step back from his leadership role, he gathers the nation of Israel together, the church in the Old Testament, and he says, you got a king, and he started well. And if you and the king will continue to honor the Lord, respect the Lord, revere the Lord, worship the Lord, listen to the Lord, take the Lord seriously, obey his word, the Lord will continue to bless you. But if you rebel, the Lord will punish you and your king. Now let's go into chapter 13 and let's start in verse 2. 
Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. So Saul sends most of the citizen soldiers home, but he keeps a standing army, probably some of the best troops. Jonathan, this is the son of Saul, defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And so, again, the the Jewish people were still being oppressed by the Philistines. And Jonathan takes his 1,000 troops, makes an attack on one of the forts. It goes well. Saul blows the trumpet because he knows the Philistines are now coming and there's going to be another battle. And he's calling the army back together. Verse 4, And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and they encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. Now here's the thing. They are far outnumbered. As the Philistines come together, it's not just that they're outnumbered numerically. They were seemingly more than 10 to 1. But skip down and look at verse 22 as well. Look at verse 22 near the end of the chapter. So on the day... Of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. The Philistines have horses, cavalry, chariots, which were essentially the, the greatest technology you could have in ancient warfare. It would have been like having tanks. The Israelite army only had two swords among all of them. I don't know how many of you have seen the old movie Braveheart. And where the Scottish people are rebelling against uh, the king of England. And the king of England has all these troops with shields and uniforms. And it's like all these poor peasant farmers come out with pitchforks, shovels, whatever they can find to fight. And that's a little bit of the picture here that you have. This poor peasant army trying to fight against a well-trained, well-disciplined, well-organized, well-equipped army. And understandably so, they feel pretty overwhelmed. And here's the question. How are they all going to respond? How are they all going to respond? So we're going to look at first how the soldiers responded. Okay? Now, I want you to think of, well, we'll get there in a minute. How are the soldiers going to respond? Look at verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Verse 8, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Skip down to verse 15 again. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army, and they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. The people are scattering. The troops are terrified. They're fleeing away. And what we're going to find, by the time the fight actually comes, Saul may have started with thousands. He's only got a few hundred men left. The people are running away. They're hiding They're trying to hightail it out of Dodge. They don't want to be a part of this fight. Now listen, when you don't fear God, when you don't reverence, when you don't respect God the way that you're supposed to, you're just setting yourself up to fear anything that comes along in life. 
You'll be terrified. You'll be panicked. And guys, fear is contagious. Fear is contagious. Let's look at the effect that it has on King Saul. Look at verse 9. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and I offered the burnt offering. The plan was that he was supposed to wait for seven full days until Samuel the prophet came. And Samuel would offer the sacrifices. Samuel would pray for the nation of Israel. Samuel would pray for the blessing of God. But day seven comes. And we're not exactly sure exactly what's going on. But the best understanding of this. It's late in day seven. And Samuel still hasn't shown up. And Saul's sitting there and he's looking at all of his army starting to flee. Or the vast majority of them going to hiding. They're panicked. And he gets panicked and he decides, I'll do it myself. He takes matters into his own hand. He doesn't obey the commandment of the Lord. He offers the sacrifices. And then Samuel comes on the scene to ask him about what he's done. And Saul is honest. He says, the people were scared. They were running away. I was scared. So, yes, I took matters into my own hand, offered the sacrifice. Look at how Samuel is going to respond to this situation. In verse 13, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord Commanded you. And the theme there is, you didn't obey. You didn't keep the commandment of the Lord. Is there any place in your life where there's a clear command of Scripture and you know you're not obeying? You keep disobeying. Now, what I want us to do here for a minute together is in a sense we're going to diagnose Saul's sins. We're going to try to really dig down deep and look at the sin behind the sin. The sin underneath the sin. The roots of the sin. Because at first glance it's like, listen, he got a little scared. He panicked. He made a bad, stupid decision. He got a little impatient. We've all done that before. What's the big deal? And God said, you were going to have a dynasty that would last forever. But now it's taken away. Seems a little harsh, God. Maybe what we're going to do, in a sense, if you've ever done any diamond shopping, maybe for an engagement ring, something like that, and you go and you learn all this stuff about the carrot, and I can't keep up with all the other things you're supposed to learn, but I remember that one. But part of what you do is you take those little diamonds... Maybe a bigger diamond and you turn it around in the light and you try to see all the different facets of the diamond, the beauty. What we're going to do is I want us to kind of dig down deep and look at Saul's sin like a diamond. It's an ugly diamond, but I want us to see all the different facets of his sin. So we can start to learn better when sin is starting to creep into our hearts in very small and subtle ways. And hopefully we can catch it more at the root before it even begins to bear fruit. Does that make sense? So the first thing is this. Think about the history. Think about what we looked at last week. Chapter 11. We had a long list of all the things that Saul did right. And all the things we said, you want to be a spiritual leader? Do what Saul did in chapter 11. And do you remember the context and the setting of chapter 11? Saul had no standing army. 
He was still, I mean, he'd been anointed to be king, but practically speaking, he's still a farmer boy. And when a terrible crisis arose, he had no army, but he called them together and he went and he won a great victory for the Lord. Now he has a standing army. Now he has a few victories under his belt. We don't know how long, how, you know, the, the distances between chapter 11 and chapter 13, but he had one big victory under his belt. And Jonathan had just won another victory. Sometimes when we get resources, we can sinfully start to depend on those resources and lose our dependence on God. So the first thing, he didn't consider God's past victories. That should have emboldened him in the face of danger. I mean, do, do you remember what Samuel, the prophet, had just said in chapter 12? Consider everything the Lord has done for you. And guys, that's what we're supposed to be doing as Christians. Reminding ourselves of the gospel. Reminding ourselves of our own testimony, of our own story, of, our, of the ways that God has come through for us in the past. So that when a new hardship comes up, we don't panic. We don't fear. We don't get overwhelmed. Do we do this? The second thing we can say Saul did, he didn't really trust God. And again, there's two different ways to do this at least. You can depend too much on the resources you have. And it can go to your head. You can become arrogant. And you don't trust in God. You trust in what you have. But the problem is when those resources start to flee, then you're going to feel empty-handed. Saul had this army. When they all started to run away, he started to panic. Listen to this quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you can improve your circumstances by fair and legitimate means, do so. And if you cannot, if you have to remain in a trying and difficult position, do not be mastered by it. Do not let it get you down. Do not let it control you. Do not let it determine your misery or your joy. Do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying, listen, if you're in a hard situation right now in life, and there's a legitimate, non-sinful way that you can get out of that hard situation, go for it. Let's say you've got some physical pain. And you're like, you know, when I take Tylenol, it makes the physical pain go away. Take the Tylenol. Don't be super spiritual and say, I don't believe in Tylenol. I'm just going to pray and say, I mean, pray and take the Tylenol. But if you're like, I've got some pain and the only thing that I think will help it go away is smoke some pot. Don't smoke the pot. Try Tylenol, pray and go see the doctor. But you don't use sinful means to address your circumstances. And that's what we see Saul doing. There's a commentator named Bill Arnold. And he's got a great quote here. It's a little bit long, but it's really good. So listen to it for just a second. He calls it the anatomy of sin. And he says, step one, it's the tyranny of the urgent. The encroaching pressure from surrounding circumstances. Now listen, that's not sin. When you feel just the encroaching pressure from surrounding circumstances, that's just normal life. Welcome to planet Earth. Life is hard. I had a friend who used to be a missionary in Germany uh, for years, and he said he had one of his daughters that would complain a lot about some of the hardships in Germany. And he used to say to her, life is hard and then you die. Maybe not the most compassionate answer in the universe, but there's a lot of truth in that. Life on planet hard, on planet, planet hard, maybe that's what we should call it. Life on planet Earth is hard and painful. Get used to it. Minimize the hardship as much as you can in legitimate ways. But don't let it drag you into sin. So step one, the tyranny of the urgent. Step two is this, insecurity and self-doubt arising from a lack of total reliance on God. And we have a great picture right here with what Saul did. But guys, we have lots of great pictures in the Bible. 
Think about the original scene with Adam and Eve. When Satan started to imply there's some special knowledge you guys don't have. They started to feel a little bit insecure. A little bit of self-doubt. They didn't trust God was going to provide everything they need. They took matters into their own hands in a sinful way. And then the third step is this. Rebellion. A human attempt to take matters into our own hands usurping God. That's when it stops being just a, a root of sin and it becomes a fruit of sin. He says this. Learning to trust God when you see your own resources slipping away. Learning to trust God even when you think your resources are sufficient when you think you can handle it. There's a ditch on both sides of the road, guys. You can feel like I don't have enough resources to address this problem. That can make you quit trusting God. Or you can say, I'm doing fine. I got lots of health, lots of strength, lots of wisdom, lots of friends, lots of money, lots of power. I don't need God. You're probably not arrogant enough to say that out loud, but we can feel that sometimes in the basement of our heart. And you cannot trust God. He didn't trust God. The third thing would be this. He didn't let God's word impact him more than the circumstances. It's not wrong to be impacted by circumstances. Open your eyes, open your ears, pay attention to what's going on in the world. It is sinful when we start to let the circumstances of life impact us more than the word of God. He had a clear command straight from God. You wait for Samuel to get there and offer the sacrifices. But when the circumstances overwhelmed him, he said, I can't do it anymore. I'll take the matters in my own hand. I'll offer the sacrifices. I think sometimes Christians feel so overwhelmed by the culture wars that we have in our country. And we feel like we're losing and getting our brains beat out. It tends to make us say and do some really stupid things sometimes. Out of fear. And I'm not saying we shouldn't engage in the cultural wars and take them serious. But we ought to do it with a humble confidence. We're going to win in the long run. We don't have to be panicked. Next, he didn't heed God's word. I mean, he just ignored it. It's not just that he didn't let it affect him enough. He basically just said, I know what God said. I don't care. I'm doing it my own way. Commentator named David said this. Certain emergencies rendered Yahweh's word unnecessary. That was Saul's mindset. Is that the way you think? God, when everything is sunshiny, right? When I'm on vacation on the beach with a cold drink in my hand, I love obeying you, God. But back here in normal life, the other 51 weeks of the year, when it's rainy and it's cold and it's hard and I have to go to work and people are mean, it's a little bit harder to actually be nice to everybody and kind and godly. You should have heard what he said. You should have heard what he did. So I'm throwing kindness out of the window. And I'm going on the attack. There's no excuses. Another commentator said this. Part of what Samuel was trying to do in chapter 12 was say, there has to be a very distinct difference between God's one true king and all the pagan kings around. And maybe here's the essential difference. These pagan kings kind of thought, I can do whatever I want. I'm the king. Yahweh's king has to submit to Yahweh's word. You can't have independence of action. I mean, a Christian should never say, I know what the Bible says, but. It ought to be, I know what the Bible says, full stop. Therefore, I obey. Right? You might say something like this. I know what the Bible says. I don't like it. I don't understand it. I still have some questions. But you ought to come back to, but I'm going to obey it. Because he's God and I'm not. 
He didn't ask my opinion. I don't get a vote. Next. He didn't value God's word over ceremonies. Think about that. He thought it was so important to offer the sacrifices. But he didn't think it was important to obey. I have met people before. And I bet you have as well. That they kind of live the party lifestyle. Or they live some type of open rebellion. Sleeping around. Drinking too much. All that kind of stuff. But then they come to church like I'm throwing a 20 in the plate. And I'm hoping God's going to bless me. We're going to take communion this morning. The Lord's Supper. But if you live in open rebellion against God all week, all month long, and then think, but I'm going to take the Lord's Supper and that will just fix everything, you're wrong. It won't. God wants you to be taking His Word serious. And even more serious than even the ceremonies of the church. I'm not saying not to take them serious. I'm just saying, don't put the Word under it. The next thing we can say about Saul, he wasn't patient. One of the places that I see myself get into the most sin is when I'm in a hurry. Right? You don't tend to run red lights when you're not in a hurry. You're in a hurry, it's like, I'm just going to have to run this red light. Here's where I see it get me in trouble the most. If I have to have a hard conversation with somebody and I try to rush it. Hard conversations are hard. You need time, you need space, you need mental, emotional space and energy. Fairly recently, maybe in the last couple of years, one of my teenage sons gotten into a little bit of some trouble at school. I finally got to talk to the teacher about it early one morning, just the only time we could both connect about it. And so I am a man of action. I like to strike while the iron is hot. So I looked at my watch. I'm like, my son's still at home. He hasn't left for school yet. I'm just going to go ahead and address this now. And here's the thing. I'm not going to go into all the gory details. But it was one of those times where I actually was like, you know what? I don't know if I agree with everything the teacher said on the phone. I might actually take my son's side here. I was going in thinking this is going to be a big victory for me and my son. We're about to connect. Because I'm going to try to go in objective, ask his opinion. And then maybe I'm going to be able to help him with this teacher. Come to a good reconciliation. When I came upstairs to talk to my son, he's like, hey, dad, I can't talk about this right now. I was like, well, let's just, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. And then he got a little belligerent and said, I'm not talking about this right now. I'm going to school. How do you think I responded then? Not well. I was like, give me the keys. Give me the phone. You're not going anywhere. And I turned into a tyrant and the conversation didn't go good. Much yelling, much tears, colorful language. Why? I got in a hurry. I tried to rush it. This is one of the biggest lessons that I'm still learning about God. God is not in a hurry. He's never behind. He's never late. But he literally has all the time in the world. Patience is so important. Now, we're almost done. Hey, but hang with me. Saul didn't own his own sin fully, but he blamed others. Did you notice that? I mean, this was what I would call about a 50% confession. Because he said, yes, I did it. I got in a hurry. I got panicked. But he said, it was the people. They were scattering. It's kind of their fault. They influenced me. Blame shifting. Same kind of thing Adam and Eve were doing in the garden. Another commentator said this. Please listen to this. 
Not taking responsibility for your own actions is one of the clearest and earliest signs you are unfit to lead. You know, you know the people that I think are maybe the worst about this? Husbands and wives. And maybe I'm speaking from a little bit of personal experience. You get into a tiff, but you're a Christian at some point, the Holy Spirit convicts you, and you're like, I need to go back and confess. But you think, you know what? She started it. And if we really want to be technical, God, maybe I did about two things wrong, but I'm sure she did eight things wrong. So I'm going to be the godly leader. I'm going to go back and repent. But i got to somehow get in there that she needs to repent of something too. How do those conversations tend to go for you? So much better if you can go and say, let me tell you what I did. How I was wrong. Again, full stop. Don't try to be Holy Spirit Junior. I'm not saying there's never a time to confront another person. But typically, when you're in a place where you need to be confessing sin, that's probably not the best time to be confronting somebody else or calling out their sin. Just confess your own and be done with it. Let me go a little bit further with that. He didn't really repent and ask for forgiveness. Did you notice that? He actually just said, yes, I did wrong. Again, it's not bad. I'd give it a, a, a 50. It's better than a zero. Maybe we even get him all the way up to 70, barely above failing. But what I wonder how this story would have gone if Saul would have said to Samuel, You're right. I'm sorry. It's my fault. I didn't listen to you. I wasn't patient. I didn't listen to the Lord. I didn't heed his word. I didn't consider how much he's blessed me. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I promise I'll never try to do it again by the power of Yahweh. I don't want to get off on this, but guys, there is a unspoken promise throughout the Bible that even when God says, hey, here's the consequence of your sin, that if you really repent, he might change his mind. The most famous example, do you remember the whole story of Jonah and Nineveh? I mean, God said, hey, Jonah, this is the Olin version, but basically God said, hey, go tell Nineveh I'm going to blow him off the face of the map. And that's basically what Jonah did. His sermon wasn't even turn or burn. He just said, Burn. And you know what? They all repented and God said, oh, I'll have mercy on them. God loves to show mercy. I wonder how this story would have ended. If Saul could have fully understood and not just said, you're right, I did it. But gone the extra mile to repent, to ask for forgiveness, to ask for reconciliation. But he didn't do any of that. Guys, we did a whole series on forgiveness and reconciliation last quarter. And I just plead with you, whether it's with a husband, a wife, a best friend, a roommate, whatever, an employee, employer, whatever. You get into conflict. It's important to acknowledge wrong, but it's not enough. Go the extra mile to say, I'm sorry. Sorry I hurt you. Sorry I angered you. And please forgive me. I own it. And by God's grace, I promise. This is Westminster Confession of Faith language. To endeavor and to purpose after new obedience. And you're like, I don't even know what endeavor means. All right, you don't have to use that word. The point is, it's going to be a heart attitude of, by God's grace and help, I'm going to try to never do that again. We need to go there. And unfortunately, most of us don't. He was too focused on the coming battle. And then, this is really the last one. Why? I think the deepest root of Saul's problem, he did not have a deep personal walk with the Lord. Think about this. I mean, his excuse... Part of his excuse for, I had to offer the sacrifices. 
Even though you weren't here, it was because I had to go ahead and call on the favor of the Lord. If that was really what was motivating, I want the favor of the Lord. You don't have to do that in a public way. Go in your prayer closet. Go get alone. There was no prohibition against that. If Saul had really had a deep, personal, intimate relationship with Yahweh, he would have said, I'm just going to go pray. I'm just going to go beg God for mercy and favor all on my own. Doesn't seem like that ever crossed his mind. I had a great friend, used to work for Campus Outreach. Actually, when I was up here at the University of North Alabama, my first four or five years on the staff, we were kind of the same age and stage. He was in a different state, different college. But we were kind of coming up through the ranks together, getting promotions, leading people to Christ, starting Bible studies, seeing people go to beach projects and overseas and doing all the same stuff. And after about five years, and we were kind of the two up-and-coming leaders in the ministry at that time. This guy was a hard worker. He was driven. He was a go-getter. He'd been a college athlete before he came to Christ. And then one day, something happened. And he said, I woke up yesterday morning and I literally didn't want to get out of bed. And he's like, I didn't. I didn't get out of bed for a whole day. This was very unlike him. And things started to go very bad for him. Some depression, some other stuff. And at some point I asked him, I said, what happened to you, man? He said, I built a skyscraper of ministry on a little house of cards foundation. That was my walk with God. My walk with God was weak. I wasn't really communing with God in a deep way so that my character was getting changed. I was just doing all the outward leadership stuff. And eventually it crumbled. Now, praise the Lord. He left ministry in the business world, walk with the Lord today. But guys... If God puts you in some leadership role like he put Saul in this leadership role and you're not cultivating a deep personal intimacy with the Lord, it is going to crash and burn. It's going to be ugly. It's not going to just hurt you. Sin splatters. It hurts the people that you lead. All sin is relational, guys. I know I've given you a lot of quotes today. If you only remember one, remember this one. It's life-changing. Matthew Henry has a lot of great quotes. This one might be my favorite. There is no little sin because there is no little God to sin against. But that every sin is a forfeit of the heavenly kingdom for which we stood ready. Saul lost his kingdom for the lack of two or three hours patience. Now again, at first, this story can seem very terrifying, very overwhelming. You're like, good gracious. God seems like a pretty severe judge. One little sin and all this. But what I've tried to show you is this was not one little sin. There were so many facets. The root system of this sin was very deep. But the real problem with it was God is a personal God. He's a relational God. He doesn't take our sins just like a speeding ticket. A sin against some arbitrary rule written down somewhere. He takes it more like a spouse that has been spurned. It hurts him because he loves us, because he's so invested in us. There's no such thing as a little sin because there's no such thing as a little God to sin against. That's pretty heavy. But there's also a lot of beauty and hope in that. Because flip the coin, yes, God is a relational God. Yes, God takes our sin very serious, even when we're in a covenant-saving relationship with Him. 
But God is a relational God. He likes us. If you're one of His people, He chose you. He adopted you. He wants you in the fold. He invited you. He suffered for you. He bought you with the blood of His Son. He's into you. There ought to be great joy. Because He doesn't want to save you and just keep you at a distance. He doesn't want to save you and just say, I'm the general, you're the soldier. Shut up and do what I say. He wants friendship. He wants intimacy. He wants that deep relationship with you. He wants that closeness. And He gives it to you. He bends over backwards to give it to us. He literally came to earth and died and suffered to give it to us. Think about this. God the Father and God the Son have existed forever. And they existed in perfect intimacy. I mean, you want to talk about the deepest friendship, joy, warmth and relationship. God the Father, God the Son for all eternity. But on the cross of Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ lost that intimacy. He lost that warmth. He lost that relational experience. So many times when Jesus walked around on earth, he would talk about my father, my father, my father. On the cross, he didn't call him my father because he didn't feel like his father. He still had faith. He said, my God, he still had faith. He didn't want to go. He could have been tempted to take things in his own hands, but he didn't do it. He persevered. Why? For us. So that we could be reconciled. So that we could be adopted. So we could talk to God and not just call him my God, but we can say, my father. Abba Father. Jesus bought that for us. And guys, that gift of grace ought to deeply motivate us. Not to be perfect because it's not going to happen. But to be serious about obedience. In all things, whether they're big or small, in our eyes or not. If Saul had obeyed, Samuel said, you could have had a dynasty that would last forever. He didn't. And he didn't get one. But the Lord Jesus Christ did obey in our stead. He is the forever king, not just of Israel, but of all the nations. He rules and he reigns. And if we're trusting in him, we get to be involved in that forever dynasty. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. We don't love you near enough. But we're so glad that we don't get saved based on how much we love you. We get saved based on how much you love us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Holy Spirit, I do pray for myself, for everybody hearing this. Convict us. Convict us where we're in sin. Convict us where we grieve you. Convict us where we resist you. Convict us where we're stiff-necked. But give us the gift of repentance. Give us the grace of repentance. Help us to be taking our sins seriously. Not as just a bunch of rule keepers. Not like we're trying to earn something. Just because we love you and we hate the fact that we grieve you with our sin. And we want to be closer. We want to experience more of your love and your warmth. Help us. Draw near Father, Son, Spirit. As we worship, as we sing, as we move to the table, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.